Good morning, Maple Grove. Good morning, Maple Grove. All right, all right, good deal. Hey, I want to start off this morning by reading some God-breathed, living, active, sharper than a double-edged sword words from God that will remind us of who it is that we've gathered in this place to worship. Brothers and sisters, who is Jesus? Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, now pause and really think about that for a moment. Like, Jesus created everything. Like the planet we're on right now, <laughs> that's hurling around the sun in the Milky Way galaxy. You know, Friday afternoon, I was having coffee with some friends on their deck, and we were just marveling at his creation, you know, watching a carpenter bee fly around and thinking, that thing should not be able to fly, but it was, and God knows everything about it. And I was saying, you know, God even knows what every apple tastes like, right? He, he knows about the Milky Way galaxy and its grandeur, and yet the smallest things, like, are you kidding me? Who is Jesus? He is before all things, and by him, all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Someone say, in everything. everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, where the things on earth are things in heaven. Revelation, not John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of God's word and the testimony about Jesus. I was in the spirit of the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned to see whose voice it was that, that spoke to me, and when I turned, I, I saw seven gold lampstands, and among the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, dressed in a long robe and with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He held seven stars in his right hands, and a double-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was shining like the sun at midday. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last, the living one. Once I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death in Hades. And Paul writes, You must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest place of honor and gave him the name above all names, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. May God bless the reading of his word, and may the Holy Spirit empower that reading. Maple Grove on 
December 19th, we as a church began a journey in the Gospel of Matthew, the king and his kingdom. A journey to know better the one who is before all things, over all things, created all things, and holds all things together. The one who is the beginning and is to have supremacy in all things. Now, the one who made peace with God for us through the blood of the cross. The one with fiery eyes, feet like bronze, and a voice like the sound of cascading waters. The one who holds seven stars in his right hands, a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and whose face shines like the sun at midday. The one who's alive forever and ever and holds the key to death in Hades. The one who humbled himself, became one of us, and died on the cross. The one who's exalted to the highest place of honor. The one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. The one who at this moment is surrounded by 10,000 times 10,000 angels surrounding his throne, crying out, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. That's who we're here to worship. That's who we're here to honor this morning. And you know, I, I think it's good for us to remind ourselves of this because we can sometimes think that we're just in a church building or that we're just here checking off some religious block. Or we can think that, hey, you know what? We're doing the creator of all things a favor by coming to church rather than cutting our grass today, right? Rather than being humbled that a God that big and mighty and holy and righteous and good and kind would even allow you and I into his presence. And we forget and think that we're actually the audience. That, that you're the audience seeing, hey, was the worship okay? Did someone say hi to me? Is Steve going as long as usual? <laughs> The Lord today is like, <laughs> right? Rather than realize that, yeah, there is an audience. It's not me. It's not you. It's him. And he said, Steve, are, are you here for me? We're here for you. Steve, are, are you performing for the audience sitting in chairs so they laugh at your jokes and think you're nice and awesome and so good looking and so Brad, Brad Pittish? <laughs> Wait a second. I, I'm not sure what that laughter was about. Am I here for him? Are you here for him? See, we've been on this journey to know better Jesus. And we're using Matthew's inspired account to help us do that. And I know we will not finish it this year, right? It's just not happening. We're in Matthew chapter 5. And where Jesus, after spending about a year teaching the multitude, healing the sick, cleansing the leper, and telling everyone to repent, for the kingdom of God was at hand, gathers those who are following him on the, on the mountains near the Sea of Galilee, and he lays out his radical counterculture manifesto about what life and his kingdom is all about. Now when the multitude saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Again, that's what rabbis did when they're about to drop some wisdom on the people. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, and he said, blessed, makarios, joyful, fulfilled, satisfied, content, happy, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we're like, that doesn't make sense. And that's not the way the equation works in our world. In our world, it's blessed are the, are the rich. But he says, blessed are the poor. He, he says, blessed are you when you get to the point when you realize that you are bankrupt before God. 
That you can't fix it, you can't restore it, you can't put the pieces back together again. It's when you come to God and you cry out, you say, God, God, help me with. And there's a blessing we'll find in that that we'll never find outside of it. Then he says, blessed are those who, who mourn. And that's not just counterintuitive, that seems contradictory. It's like saying happier the sad, happier the sorrowful. Doesn't make a lot of sense. But here's what we find. Is that in the tears and the pain and the sorrow, there's a blessing from God. That cannot be found outside of mourning. A lot of us experience that. As Job says in Job, I love that 42 verse 5. My ears have, have heard about you. I have gone to church for years. I checked all the blocks. But now my eyes have seen you. And my pain and my sorrow and my hurt, my eyes have seen you because I experience you in a new and mightier way. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who keep their power and strength under control for the benefit of others and the Glory of God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who hunger and thirst to know God, to be like Jesus, and to make this world a better place, for they will be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful. Not just those who do acts of mercy, but those who are becoming a merciful person, such that that mercy begins to flow out of them to those who have a material need, to those who mess up and need a second chance, to those who are on the outside, outcasts, have no friends, to those who doubt and are struggling in their walk with God, to those who fail and disappoint them, to those who hurt them, to the lost who need Jesus Christ because they will be shown mercy. And as I said last week, what if Jesus was serious? Like, what, what if fulfillment, satisfaction, and contentment are found, not in trying to make all the circumstances or like just work out so, but in pursuing this blessed life? What if Jesus was serious, and what if you, what if I, what if we took Jesus seriously and began to pursue this life? Here's the deal. The life you've always wanted, the life you were created to live, the kingdom life, is within your reach. In fact, it's a life that God through his spirit has empowered every person in his kingdom to live. Peter writes, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. It's May 1st, 2022, and this morning we're going to begin unpacking Beatitude number six in Jesus' radical countercultural manifesto about life in the kingdom. Blessed the pure in heart, for they will see God. And what's your first reaction? Mine is, see God, awesome. Pure in heart, impossible. Impossible. I can't do it. Not me. Okay, here's how I want to attack our conversation this morning by unpacking three things. The call, the promise, and the path. Now, blessed the pure in heart, for they will, they will see God. And I kind of want to reverse engineer this, and I want to start with the promise first, right? And what is the promise for those who are pure in heart? That they will, they'll see God. But what, what does that even mean, right? They'll see God. I mean, the Old Testament, like, people were not really allowed to see God, right? When the God's glory fell on the mountain, they were told, hey, don't go near that mountain, and you will die. And remember when Moses said, God, show me your glory, and God said, hey, I really can't do that because if you see me, my face, you're going to die, but I'll kind of pass by you and let you see the afterburn of my glory, right? And, and, and God did that. And so what does it mean to see God? Well, 
Uh, maybe it's referring to some of the promises we find in Scripture, like in 1 John 3, 2. Uh, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what will be has not yet been made known, but we'll know that when he, Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Or, or maybe it's like the promise in Revelation 22, that day when you and I will surround the throne of God, and it says that we will see his face. And I can only imagine what that's going to be. Someday to see his face. Amen? But listen, this beatitude, Jesus is not talking about seeing God's face someday in the future, but seeing God in our right now. And help us understand what it means to see God. Uh, I think it's helpful to look at uh, three words that the Greeks, the New Testament written Greek, that they use for the word see. One word basically meant to see with your eyes, right? Like, I see my hand in front of my face. I, I see the clock on the back wall. I see you drifting off to sleep as I'm trying to preach the word of God, right? Another word means to see and observe, like you go to watch a movie, right? You see it and observe, or better yet, you stay home and see and observe because it's a whole lot cheaper than going to a movie, right? They're so expensive. And the third word, which is the word Jesus uses here, harao means to perceive, to know, to become acquainted with by personal experience. To perceive the know, to become acquainted with by personal experience. And if you think about it, we use our one word see in the exact same way, right? Like, have you ever traveled to go see friends or family members, right? And you say, hey, I'm going to go see my friends. Now, what do you mean by that? Do you mean you're going to drive to their house, stay in your car, wind down your window, watch them walk outside and go, hey, I see them, and then you drive off. Is that what you mean? Yeah. <laughs> That's what Tom means, right? And, and, or, or, or do you mean that, hey, you're going to set up some lawn chairs in the front yard and watch them for a week, and then... That'd be creepy, right? <laughs> and then leave, right? Hey, I saw them, right? Wow, look what they're doing, right? Or do you mean that you're going to go in their home and share a meal, have some conversations, right? Spend time with them personally. Karao, to perceive, to know, to become acquainted by personal experience. And you know what's kind of crazy? You know, in that same chapter where God says, Moses, you cannot see my face. We read this in Genesis 33, verse 11. The Lord would speak to Moses Moses' face, and in Hebrew, it's actually face-to-face. Panem el Panem. I, I looked it up. I listened 100 times in the Blue Letter Bible, right? Strong's G42.4. Panem el Panem. Face-to-face as a man speaks with his friend. Exodus 33, verse 11. Now, he couldn't see his face, but it's talking about Moses had this relationship to God. It was like he was seeing God. Face to face. Understand, 2,000 years ago on that hill by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus says, hey, you want to know how to see God? Do you want to know how to have a personal relationship with God? And can you see how shocking and mind-blowing it was to the people and how offensive it had to be to the Pharisees? I mean, they were the keeper of the rules. And there were a lot of rules. 613 rules in the Old Testament law and a bunch they made up on their own. And I can just see them shaking their heads hearing Jesus say this. Blood, anger, muttering on themselves. Who does this upstart rabbi from a no-name town think he is? Telling these people that they could see God. They don't even know all the laws that we know. That's our job. That's not his job. Who does he think he is? Bless their pure heart, for they will see God. You want to see God? 
Do you want to have a personal relationship with him? And yeah, the same God I talked about earlier, that breathes out stars, that parts oceans, that create everything. If that does not blow you away, that the God who's always existed, that's not dependent on anything, for whom nothing is impossible, wants to have a relationship with you, if that does not blow you away, nothing ever will blow you away. Amen? And that's the promise of Matthew 5, 8. Now let's look at the call. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now if Jesus would have left those last two words off, right, in heart, the Pharisees would have been all over it, right? I, I mean, when it came to keeping rules, they had an A-plus rating, right? A-plus. When it came to out, outward purity. To them it was more like, blessed are the rule keepers. Blessed are the outwardly clean. Blessed are those who maintain a good image publicly. All kinds of rules about what to eat, what not to eat, what to wear, not, what, what not to wear, how far you can walk away from your home. Now, if you took a piece of your home, you took a chair from your home, you could extend that distance. You know, well, I'm going to go two miles, but if I put a piece of my furniture here, that ex- they're crazy. How you wash your hands, who to eat with, who not to eat with. And all those external things were an effort to appear pure to those watching. But Jesus did not say, blessed are the pure. He said, blessed are the pure in heart. And there's a big difference between the two. There's a big difference between appearing pure on the outside and being pure on the inside. Get it? Good. Now, the Greeks, uh, the heart, the Greek word cardia, where we get, obviously, right, cardiologists and stuff like that. Uh, They define heart as the fountain and seat of our thoughts, passions, desires, appetites, affections, purposes, will, and character. Bottom line, the heart is who you are on the inside. Your heart is the real you. Listen, the heart is the soil of which everything else grows. Your heart is your soil of which everything else in your life grows. And and that's why throughout Scripture, God shows he's deeply concerned and passionate about our hearts. Just a few of the countless scriptures. Deuteronomy 10 verse 16. He says, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Joshua said, now then, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord. In 1 Samuel, we read that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks where? God looks at the heart. Proverbs 27, 19, as a face is reflected in the water, so the heart reflects the real person. Proverbs 4, 23, it's my license tag, you know. I I wish I obeyed it better, right? Uh, Guard your heart above all else. Are you doing that? Even a little? For it determines the course of your life. Uh, You want to know why your life is off course? Because you're not guarding your heart. Jesus said, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. He said in Matthew 15, but the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, theft, lying, sexual morality, slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands cannot defile you. And so here's the deal. You know, a, a, a central 
part of living in his kingdom is understanding that God cares more about our hearts, our inside, than he does about our outside, which is so easy to fake. Especially in our age of social media, right? Like, if you want everybody to think you have a perfect family, here's what you do. You hire a professional photographer, everybody dresses up, you find the perfect outdoor setting, snap the pictures, make your post, and let the likes and approvals start streaming in. What a beautiful, what a lovely, what a perfect, what an amazing family. Question, what was happening a week before? A minute before. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's not real. Like if you want to know who someone is, you're not going to find out who they are by looking at their Facebook or Instagram. You may know some stuff about them, the stuff they want you to know about them, but it's not them. God looks at the heart. He looks at the inside. Bottom line, God does not do pretend. Look at a person, three people, and tell them God does not do pretend. God does not do pretend. See, Jesus dropped this well-worn word pure into a sermon, and then he gives it a dramatic spin, letting us know that the way of his kingdom, it's not about outward appearance. It's about the heart. And God's economy is about the purity of heart, not the purity of image. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Okay, let's dive a little deeper into what it means to be pure in heart. First, let me say, being pure in heart does not mean sinless. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> uh, because as God says in John, 1 John 1, 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, the word for pure is the Greek word, katharos. And it does not mean something that's never been dirty. Again, good news, right? Because if we had a never been dirty, then we are in trouble, right? It's over. Game over. Now, scholars suggest this word has two primary meanings. First, it means to make pure by cleansing from dirt, filth, or contamination. To make pure by cleansing from dirt, filth, or contamination. It was used to describe metals that have been refined by the fire, clothes that have been washed to remove stains, grain that's been carefully sifted to remove impurities. Second, it refers to unmixed, having no double allegiance. Basically, it's the idea of integrity, singleness of heart, as opposed to duplicity, a divided heart, which James actually addresses this very thing in James chapter 4. He says, come near to God and he'll come near to you. James 4, 8. Wash in your sinners and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And how are they being double-minded? Well, you can check out James 4, 4 through 5 on your own. They're being double-minded because they say, hey, you know what? <laughs> you know, it's okay to be a friend of the world. The world's pretty cool. Got a lot of nice stuff. And a friend of God at the same time. You know what God called them? He said, he said you adulterous people. If you're going to friend of the world, you're going to be my enemy. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world is an enemy of mine, God says. They're trying to you know, stay in both lanes. Doesn't work. 
Let's put these two definitions together. A person with a passion for purity is one who's been cleansed in character so that the way they look in public is the way they look in private. They're undivided, authentic, sincere, unpretending, not faking it, a person of integrity. The root word of integrity is integer, right? Junior high math, right? Integer, right? A whole number, whole number. Integrity, you know, state of being whole or undivided, being real, right? That's what it is. Now, in ancient Rome, sculpting was a popular profession with a lot of sculptors because a lot of demand, a lot of money, that's, we're going to make bucks, right? But some sculptors weren't really that good at it, but they thought, hey, I can make money. It works, right? And, and so what happened was their products weren't good, and so legitimate sculptors started to stamp their statues with these words, sincera, which means sincere, right? Where we get our word sincere, rather, and this means without wax. So what happened to the not-so-good sculptors, the poor craftsmen? Like, things didn't line up quite right. There were cracks, and they would put wax to hide everything. And, and so the good sculptors would put sincera, say, hey, hey, you know what? We didn't do that, you know, uh, it, without wax. And we're going to put it out in the sun and, 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 and prove to you that there's no wax in it. They proved that it was pure. They proved that it was sincere. And that's what we're getting at when we talk about being pure in heart. It's a heart without wax. It's a heart that's authentic, unpretending, heart of integrity, whole, undivided. And when you read the Gospels, you find that Jesus' strongest rebukes were for people who were pretending. Trying to look good on the outside and didn't have integrity. Here's some of his final words to these guys. If you ever wonder why they killed Jesus, this is part of it, right? Woe to you. If God ever says, woe to you, woe to you, right? <laughs> Teach the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and the outside will be clean also. Woe to you. Teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous. On the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Again, it's not about perfection, not about never being dirty. They'll be able to have a personal relationship with God. See, God loves honesty. He actually kind of requires honesty, right, to come into his presence. Remember the parable he told of the tax collector and sinner praying? Pharisee prays, God, thank you for making me so awesome. I'm not like these other filthy sinners. I'm amazing. I fast two times a week. And give a tenth of all I have. And the tax letter prays, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. One pretending, one being authentic. And who do you think God accepted in his presence? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, I understand this idea of being pure in heart a little bit better, because I want us to get this. And, and sometimes 
In, in church, we talk about things, but don't understand how to actually do them, right? So it really doesn't help us to know if we don't know how to put it into practice or understand it completely. And there's basically two kinds of purity. Uh, positional purity and practical purity. Listen, even though there's such things as self-cleaning ovens, self-cleaning washing machines, self-cleaning litter boxes, and self-cleaning underwear. Actually is. I want to line. Here's what it says on our website. I love it. Underwear that you can wear for days, weeks, or even months without getting smelly. Two, four, nine hundred, ninety-nine dollars. I'm not kidding you. I don't, I don't, anybody have any on right now? Fess up, fess up. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay. Uh, no, it is true. I'm, oh, it is. It is. It is. I'm not lying to you. I think it's 10 for like $300, 10 pairs, right? They don't ever clean them. They don't get smelly. I don't know how it works. Some new material. Anyhow. Okay. Now you know. You're going to yeah, great. Okay. Maybe I shouldn't even put that in there because we're getting distracted here. I, I pray for you not to be distracted and I throw a major distraction on you. Um, but there's no such thing as a self-cleaning heart, right? Uh, we cannot clean our heart ourselves. See, positional purity is God's job. Amen? It's purity that, that God gives to us. We actually read this very thing in Acts chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas are in Jerusalem reporting how God has opened up the gospel to the Gentiles. And here's what we read, Acts 15, 8 and 9. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Understand, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, if you're in Christ, you are positionally pure. It's not based on your feelings. It's based on your obedience to the gospel, amen? Amen. See, we are saved by our position in Christ and not by our condition because we got it all cleaned up, right? And we're saved by what God does, has done for us, not what he does in us. What he does in us is, is great and helps us be more like him, but we're saved by what he has done for us on the cross. Not based on your feelings. I'm glad, right? You know, God to say, well, you feel sick. No, you're saved based on your obedience to the gospel. Paul writes, if anyone was in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. God made him without sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Crazy, but true. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. So in Christ you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have closed yourself with Christ. So when God looks at us, he doesn't see our ugliness he sees Jesus. He sees his righteousness. He sees his imputed, given to us purity. Amen? God's job. Positional purity. And then there's practical purity. That's tougher. Because many times we look in the mirror and we don't feel very pure. Hard. Yet all over the New Testament we see God calling us, commanding us to a purity heart, to Take off and put to death the old self and to put on the, the new self. Again, positional purity is given to us by God, but practical purity is God working in our lives as we surrender more and more of our life to Him. Like Paul says in Philippians 2, it's God and us working together. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
For it's God who works in you. Right? We're to work out what God is working in us, right? You know, God's going to work, and now we're to work that out with fear and trembling, right? So that we become the people that he wants us to be. Again, this is hard. Like, like, like I, know I'm, I know I'm positionally pure, but being practically pure in a fallen world, <laughs> being practically pure when I'm under stress or frustrated and I don't respond the way that I, I know that I should, it's difficult. That's why we need Jesus. Understand, I'm not enough unless you come. It's not some great song to sing in church. It's a great way to live our life. In fact, it's the only way to live our life in Christ. I'm not enough. I'm not enough to live this life unless you come. And let me be clear. Practical purity is not about perfection. It's about direction. It's about direction. Not are you perfect. Not are you perfect. You never will be. But are you even trying? Are you even trying? Are you even by the grace of God aiming towards the goal of being pure? Of being a person of integrity, of being real before others and before God. And, and as we wrap up, and I do have a good amount of wrapping paper, but we are wrapping up. <laughs> Here's four quick things, quick things, for you to marinate on this week, right? Because I want to see God. I want to see him, and I want you to see him. And and here's four things. I'll start with the C, right? Isn't that awesome? Um, If you want to walk in purity of heart and develop that, be careful. Be careful. Be careful. Like, Like, what are you allowing to influence your life? See, if we're going to be people of integrity, people who are pure in heart practically, we need to be careful. What are you allowing to influence your life? I like how Paul puts it in Philippians 4. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Right? Like, what if we... Make that like a filter. For everything in our life and everything that comes into our life. And like, it, it, if, it, if it doesn't fit through that filter, we, we kind of get rid of it. And you say, well, that's kind of intense. Yeah, maybe. Or, or maybe it's just being careful. Maybe it's just about purity of heart. Question, whatever is in your thoughts in life, is it true and honorable? Is it right and lovely? Are are you thinking of things that are excellent and worthy of praise? Be careful. You know what will help you be careful? To have some accountability in your life. See, if we're to walk in this purity of life, purity of heart, we need people who know us enough to call out stuff in our life, right? Right? Who know enough about us to call us out when we are off track. Amen? Okay, two of you like it. Okay. <laughs> now, we love that verse in Proverbs, right? 27, 17. Great name for men's group, T-shirts, bumper stickers. Iron sharpens iron, right? We love it. But listen, that's an intense process. <laughs> like, there are sparks, <laughs> right? And there's heat. 
right? And, and there's friction. But guess what? After all that pain, something's sharper, right? That's how we get sharper. You need people in your life keeping you accountable to live out purity of heart. Amen? Be careful. Be consistent. Be consistent. It's the idea of integrity. Be the same person no matter where you are. I mean, whether you're at home with your family, whether you're at work, whether you're out with your friends, whether you're at the grocery store, whether you're all by yourself at 11 o'clock at night, be the same person. Like in someone drop on you 24-7 anytime and find out, hey, that's the same person. I saw you last week. That's you. That's and here's a tough one with this consistent thing. Is what you are lying with. What, I'm trying to wrap fast. I'm a terrible package wrapper, as you already know, right? If what you are aligning with publicly, I said it wrong again. Okay. Is what you are aligning with publicly representative of who you are privately? Is what you are aligning with publicly representative of who you are privately? Like, if I scroll through my Facebook feed or you scroll through yours, and we see all that stuff we're saying publicly, does that kind of match who we are privately? Like, there's no fakery, no deceit, no pretending. Like, like if someone was watching your life just on Facebook, right? Never met you. And they're watching your life on Facebook. Oh, wow, what a, got a great family. Most amazing husband ever, taking care of his kids, right? Out serving the community, posting all these great scripture. If they pop in on you sometime, where they go like, who are you? Who are you? You're, you're not, you're, you're, that's, I don't know who you are, but you're not. I came across this quote this week. Uh, May your life someday be as awesome as you pretend it is on Facebook, right? Yeah, right? It's true, right? Best vacation. Yeah, maybe it was okay, but, you know, and that's kind of the mentality that many of us have adopted our lives. You know, we push into the spotlight everything we want people to see. And things we don't want to see, we kind of keep secret. And like we live one script, we're on stage, put on the show. But once we come off the stage at home, in the car, in the hallway, it's a different script altogether. That's not a blessed life. That's not kingdom life. And it's not even a healthy life. Some dude wrote a book called Coping with Stress, and he says this, people who tend to keep secrets or live inauthentic lives have more physical and mental complaints on average than people who do not, including greater anxiety, depression, bodily symptoms such as back pain and headaches. See, there is these side effects when you don't have a pure heart, when you're pretending to be more on the outside than you are on the inside, and it's not a path to a blessed life. It's exhausting and frustrating to live your life as a full-time actor or actress. Wherever you go, you're pretending. You're putting on a show. You're citing lines, and it just wears you out. And to make it worse, it will keep you from seeing God. Be careful, be consistent, be courageous. Like, do you call out what is right, and do you call out what is wrong and encourage what is right, no matter what political party or camp it puts you in? I said, it does not matter what jersey you are wearing. As a kingdom person, 
You're to call out wrong and to encourage what is right. Amen? And listen, we live in a world that won't let you do that, right? Oh, you're on this side? Then you got to agree with everything this side says, right? Are you on that side? You're going to agree? No. As kingdom people, we're not on anyone's side but his side. And our motto needs to be, I don't care if it's on this side or that side. If it's wrong, I'm going to call it out. If it's right, I'm going to encourage it. And listen, as we enter another election season, it'd be great for us to remember that because so many Christians seem to think that the answer to the problem of our world is somehow some political leader. It's not. They cannot change a person's heart, right? I can get caught up in that. Well, if my guy gets in there, if that bad guy gets out, we just get back to the house, we lose, the, whatever. That's not going to solve anything. Only he can change hearts. Be careful, be consistent, be courageous. When you do that, you know what you're going to be? You're going to be contagious. Like if, you, if we start living that way, people are going to notice. They're coming to say, dude, how are you? How are you staying so calm and grounded in this crazy, insane, chaotic world? How do you do it? It's like, it's like you have this peace and confidence through all this insanity. It's like you always are the same person. I don't, how do you, what's going on here? Because every time I turn on the news, I'm like, oh, world's over. Oh, it's going to be better. <laughs> be careful. Be consistent, courageous, and be contagious. And as I wrap up, and this is a real wrap-up. Man, there's like that much wrapping paper left. I need to tell you, as you already know, <laughs> that because of the role I'm in, I'm in at, at church, without even meaning to, I can pretend to be more than I really am. Like, at times, I, I, can, I can kind of be putting on a show, standing on a stage, reciting some lines. You see, my instinct is, hey, if I'm going to do this effectively, then you know what? I need to cover some stuff up. Don't let it show. Like, there have been times when I've pretended to be strong and confident. When behind the mask, I'm weak, uncertain, and afraid. And so the tendency is that we cover things up, that we, we put a smile on our face. We, we act like we got it all figured out, even though we know that it's not true. And then, and the real, real danger in pretending we're something we're not is that we're not pure in heart and we're not going to be able to see the one we need to see the most. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey writes this, as a child, I put on my best behavior on Sunday mornings, dressing up for God and for the Christians around me. Listen to this. It never occurred to me that church was a place to be honest. Now, though, as I seek to look at the world through the lens of grace, I realize that imperfection is a prerequisite for grace. Light only gets in through the cracks. You see, we don't have to pretend when we come into God's presence. 
Matter of fact, if we are pretending, we're not getting in. We can be honest. God, you know what? God, I'm angry right now. And I try to say it's other people, but I think I'm angry at you. <laughs> like, like, like you, you did some bait and switch in my life. I don't know what you're doing, but I don't like it. God, I have doubts about who you are. I have doubts about me. God, I, I'm really struggling. I have this sin I just can't get rid of. It keeps coming back, God. I don't want it there, but it seems to pop up all the time. God, would you please? See, we don't have, isn't it great? You don't have to pretend. I mean, can we just admit that a lot of dishonesty and a lot of performing and pretending, <clears throat> I'm almost done. I'm ready for the label of scotch tape. <laughs> but this is such a good thing, I have to take a drink here. I'm not well, that's okay. Um, can we just admit that a lot of dishonesty, a lot of performing, and pretending happens at a place where we should be the most real, the most authentic, and the least fake in pretending, right? I mean, if any place we should be able to be who we really are, it should be his church, amen? And you know what I think? Here's what I think. And here's what I'm praying for. That, that as we dive into Matthew, as we look at these very real conversations and we think about maybe really taking Jesus serious, that God's going to help us get to that place. A place where we can walk into this building, be authentic and real people of integrity who have struggles, who have ups and downs, mountain highs and valley low, but know that we are still positionally secure because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, even though we struggle daily with our own practical purity. Blessed are the pure in heart, the unpretenders, the people with integrity who are not faking it, for they will see God. They will have a personal relationship with the creator and sustainer of this universe. Brothers and sisters, be careful. Be careful. Be consistent. Be courageous. And become contagious. Father God, we love you. We humbly come into your presence, God. And God, I'm so glad, Lord, that with you I don't have to be on stage. With you I don't have to put on the mask and get all dressed up. I can come as I am and say, God, this is me and I need you and I need to see you. God, help us to be a church, a body of people who are pure in heart, people of integrity, who are the same person wherever we are. Help us to help each other to live that out. Not as people looking for flaws in each other, but in ways we can lift each other up toward this awesome goal. As we sing the song, God, about where our hope is and where it's found, that's all found and grounded on and built on Christ alone. Holy Spirit, just move in our hearts. I know that you have something to say to each of us, and may we receive it from you this day as we sing and prepare to take communion together. Amen.